We make decisions every day, but these days, those decisions, big and small, can feel paralyzing. Welcome to Deciding Factors, a new podcast from GLG. I'm your host, Eric Jaffe. Each week, I'll talk to a world-class expert who has faced incredibly tough decisions and can offer unique insights to help you navigate the decisions you face. For most of the 2000s, the Middle East dominated international news. Most prominently because of the war in Iraq, Iran's nuclear ambitions, the civil war in Syria, and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Only a decade later, many of its underlying issues remain unresolved. With so many global crises, the region's challenges receive less prominent coverage from Western news outlets, and many countries, including the U.S., seem to have been chastened by a decade spent struggling unsuccessfully to advance an agenda. And yet at the same time, a significant change in the fundamental dynamics that shape the region may have taken place marked by the recent Israel-UAE-Abraham Accord that formalizes what was a pre-existing relationship between those two unlikely allies. There is perhaps no better U.S. official with whom to discuss the Middle East than Ambassador Dennis Ross. Ambassador Ross is William Davidson Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, a Washington think tank. He is that rare official who has served four U.S. presidents in senior advisory roles on the Middle East, including Presidents Reagan, President H.W. Bush, President Clinton, and President Obama. He served as the U.S. point person on the Middle East peace process for both President H.W. Bush and President Clinton, and he's the author of several influential books on the peace process, the Middle East, and international relations. His most recent book, co-written with his colleague at the Washington Institute, David Makovsky, is Be Strong and of Good Courage, How Israel's Most Important Leaders Shaped Its Destiny, which showcases the courage demonstrated needed to overcome challenges by four Israeli leaders who faced existential questions about the future of Israel. Ambassador Ross, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you on. Nice to be with you. Thank you. With so much going on in the world and and with so much concern over COVID here at home and in our economy, maybe we could start by just talking about why should the average American care about the Middle East? I'll start by answering that by noting that during the transition between the Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush administrations, I was playing a role with the incoming Secretary of State, Jim Baker, and I was going through a presentation on the Middle East, and he was basically saying, look, I I don't intend to to be very involved there. It's You need to be successful if you're going to be Secretary of State in the Middle East is not exactly the way to become successful. (laughs) And I said to him, well, you may not want to visit the Middle East, but the Middle East is going to visit you. When we think of being independent in terms of oil, we're thinking in terms of our own production, but there's still only one broad pool of oil and energy internationally. So if you disrupt it in a fundamental way in the Middle East, and let's say you take 20% of the world's energy supplies out of the market, well, then you're going to bid up the price very dramatically. It will have an effect on our economic situation. It will certainly have an effect on those with whom we trade and whom are our allies. Uh, When it comes to the Middle East, like it or not, we continue to have an interest in it. And if we somehow try to separate ourselves from it, stand aloof from it, we'll find out sooner or later we'll be drawn back into it. So one of the key things is how to prevent vacuums from forming in the Middle East that get filled by the worst forces and sooner or later will threaten us more directly. Uh, It's always better if you're going to be involved to be involved in a sense based on your own interests and your own terms and not be put in a position where you're forced to come back in. And when you are, the costs are always higher uh, and the consequences are always worse. So non-proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, I think, remains an important interest as well. 
you know, in theory, it would be great to see the promotion of democracy there. But I think if there's one thing we've learned, or at least should have learned, we can't impose our values on others, even if we remain true to those values and emphasize consequences for others when they don't fulfill them or when they violate them. There should be norms internationally that we try to get everybody to live up to, but imposing a political system on others is something that no one is really capable of doing, and the consequences of trying we've seen tend to be pretty bad. I wonder also about the the costs of trying to achieve those goals. How do you think about you know the U.S. trying to achieve those goals versus the various costs of different actions we could take to try to achieve those goals? Well, I think you put your finger on something that's essential. I think one of the reasons there is a real fatigue with the Middle East is because we have been involved in conflicts, whether it was Iraq or the greater Middle East, Afghanistan, where our involvement was extremely costly and where the gains at best were hard to see. The critical challenge, I think, for us in the area is to figure out who are our natural friends, who can we be working with, who will be credible enough in terms of dealing with threats that are threats to them. When it came to dealing with ISIS, for example, we are not the ones who rooted them out on the ground. It was basically the Syrian Democratic Forces, mostly who are Kurdish. They lost 11,000 dead in terms of rooting out ISIS on the ground. We lost six people, terrible to have lost six people, but they bore the brunt of it. And how did we help them? Well, we helped them materially. We helped them with air support. We helped them with artillery support. We provided spotters. Really the core of what you're asking is, If you have to be involved, how do you make that involvement manageable? What is it that we need to do to build up others so that they're capable of doing this largely on their own or only with a minimal amount of American support? When, in general, does the president make a decision versus, for example, the secretary of defense, the secretary of state or commanders that are on the ground in theater? I would say as a general rule, if it doesn't involve the use of force, decisions can be made below the level of the president. I can envision many circumstances where the Secretary of State will decide that he or she is going to do something and might call the National Security Advisor and say, look, I I don't think this rises to the level of having to discuss this with the President, but I intend to do the following unless you think we should have a further discussion on it. That would be a kind of natural way to carry out policies that, in a sense, the basic guidelines of the policies have been adopted. The President has authorized it and then you're continuing to implement that policy. That's pretty much how it would work. And if I were someone who wanted to figure out, for example, what the Trump administration's policy was with respect to the Middle East, what might I look at? Where would I go to find out? Well, in this administration, you'd probably go to the president's tweets. (laughs) This administration is different because so much is done by the president, oftentimes on the basis of almost impulse. For example, he made the decision to withdraw our forces from northeast Syria after talking to the president of Turkey. This was not a decision that was vetted in advance. He made that decision. Speaking of that White House, they brokered what they are saying is a consequential agreement, which is known as the Abraham Accord between Israel and the UAE. Israel and the UAE have had a informal relationship for many years, but this seems to have formalized it. Could you just start by explaining what is the Abraham Accord and why does it matter? The significance of it, and you frame this well in your question, is not that there hasn't been a quiet relationship between Israel and the UAE. I can tell you for more than a decade, there has been an evolution. Uh, and that evolution was 
building the range of relationships between the two countries, but the vast majority of those relationships were below the radar screen. This is formalizing what was a kind of informal set of relationships. It will be removing all the limitations or obstacles to doing business in the open. You are already seeing Israeli and Emirati teams working through banking regulations, working through tax questions designed to make investment and commercial relations cue to a set of laws in both countries and to normalize that. The significance of this is that it also is the third country to make peace with Israel formally in the region, but it's the first country that was not in a state of war with Israel. It's the first country that doesn't have a common border with Israel. It's the first country that hasn't fought a war with Israel. And so, not surprisingly, it's focused on the stuff of peace, what I call the stuff of peace, the content of peace, real normal relations between private sectors, between peoples, uh, not just formal relations between governments. What you see with both Egypt and Israel and Jordan and Israel is a kind of formal diplomatic relationship, but minimal ties between the two societies. With the UAE, the interesting thing about making it formal is that it really opens the floodgates to what's possible between the two publics. And that has implications not only in terms of eroding the psychological prohibitions to creating greater normal relations, but it also basically creates what can be an example for others as well. Now, there's a reason why we haven't seen more such peace agreements before. And that is that the Palestinian issue has been an inhibitor. And many in the region felt that you couldn't normalize with Israel so long as the Israelis were occupying the Palestinians. This is a first full-fledged agreement that didn't make that a condition. The Emirates wanted as well to be able to have access to weapons systems that up until now they'd been denied. The U.S. has had a longstanding commitment to preserve Israel's qualitative military edge. Israel's military will always be smaller in size than the Arab militaries that it has faced historically in combat. And so the idea that the qualitative character of the Israelis' forces had to be superior given their quantitative inferiority uh, was something that is longstanding. But we always created a different standard for how we dealt with those Arab states that were at peace with Israel, who were our security partners in a sense. We created a difference there from those who did not have peace with Israel. They saw a win for the U.S. and the Trump administration in terms of being able to deliver progress uh, with a third Arab country making peace with Israel. Israel gained because it had normalization now with a third Arab country. And the Emirates uh, not only saw benefits in terms of their cooperation with Israel, but they also saw benefits in terms of access to weaponry, which they believe is essential for their security, especially given the threats they face from the Iranians and many of the Iranian Shia militias. Did something meaningful shift that represents perhaps a new era of relations in the region? The fact is, yes, we are looking at a manifestation of what is a different strategic landscape in the region. It's not new in the sense that for the last decade, there has been an increasing amount of cooperation, not just between the UAE and Israel, but a number of other Arab states in Israel, below the table, below the radar screen, or off the radar screen, because they saw common threats. All of the Gulf Arab states look at Iran as being a threat. Cooperating with Israel, who they saw as one of the major bulwarks against Iranian expansion in the region, made perfect sense. Many of those Gulf states, with the exception of Qatar, also see the Muslim Brotherhood 
as a threat. And so this perception of the threat, both from the Iranians, uh, their Shia proxy militias, and from the Muslim Brotherhood and Al-Qaeda and ISIS, there was a perception that the Israelis view them as a threat and the, the Sunni Arab leaderships view them as a threat. And Israel was seen as a country that could do a lot to sort of blunt those threats. So that created a convergence of interest over the last decade. And it created a scope of cooperation that wouldn't have been imaginable. I saw it even when I was still in the Obama administration. And in a sense, we've seen it develop even more. Now, one of the reasons it's developed even more is because there's been an increasing question about the durability and reliability of America's commitments in the Middle East. Uh, Ironically, the more questions have been raised about how reliable we might be, what sort of staying power we have in the region, the more many of these countries have looked to the Israelis. Because as they will say, and I've heard it when I've been in the Gulf, Israel is part of the region, they're not going anyplace. And we're looking at the Israelis, the Israelis may not talk a lot about what they do, either with us or against the Iranians, but they do act. And I will just tell you, the Israelis have probably hit something like 1,200 targets in Syria that were related to Iran trying to build military infrastructure there, fabricate factories to produce precision-guided capabilities to put on top of the rockets that they have provided to Hezbollah in Lebanon. The others in the region look at that, and what they see is Israel doesn't talk about what it does, but it acts, and it acts in a way to blunt the threats that we're also worried about. So that already created an interesting, different alignment in the region. But for the most part, again, because the Palestinian issue was an inhibitor, you didn't see it given any real visibility. Now what you're seeing, and that's what I think this breakthrough represents, there's less reluctance to expose the cooperation. Israel is a cutting-edge country in terms of health technologies, water technologies, agricultural and food security technologies, cyber technologies. All of these sectors and areas uh, are areas of increasing interest to the Sunni-led governments in no small part because they're going to be facing increasing challenges, especially in an environment of COVID-19 and also the effects that climate change is having in terms of increasing droughts within the region. It feels like President Bush and President Trump have more closely aligned themselves unapologetically with Israel. And President Obama took a different tack. And you worked in the Obama administration. He started his administration with a very famous Cairo speech where he positioned himself as sort of an honest broker among all parties. He was criticized for that approach because they felt like it was turning his back on Israel as an ally. If you were advising a President Biden or a President Trump, which approach would you suggest that they take, especially given the goals that you mentioned earlier on in the conversation, U.S. goals uh, in the region? President Obama came in and he felt that President Bush's war on terror was interpreted by Muslim majority countries as a war on Islam. It wasn't. That's certain. And President Bush frequently said that. But President Obama felt that's the way it was seen, and he felt that was also a recruiting tool. And so he felt the need to outreach to the Arabs and to the Muslim-majority countries. And he also felt that the Bush administration had been so close to Israel that that also contributed to some of our problems in the region. My own view would be, if, you, if in fact you want to be promoting Israeli-Palestinian peace, 
the most important thing is to be seen as an effective broker, not an honest broker, because honest broker has a connotation of neutrality. I don't know anybody who's fully an honest broker unless you're the Red Cross. We have a relationship with one side that is different from the relationship we have with the other side. So in that sense, we'll never be fully an honest broker, but that's not the measure. The measure is, can you be an effective broker? To be an effective broker, you have to take the needs of both sides into account. I want to talk about the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA. Can you tell us what was the Iran nuclear deal now that we've walked away from it and why did it matter? Where there's been a consensus within the United States is that Iran, this particular regime, should not have a nuclear weapon. Now, in truth, we want to prevent nuclear proliferation more generally, nuclear weapons proliferation more generally. So there was a, an agreement, a consensus within the United States that Iran could not be permitted to have a nuclear weapon. Now, Iran had a very active nuclear program, and much of it they kept hidden. Uh, even though they signed the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which requires them to reveal all nuclear-related activities, eventually there was a back channel that was created starting in 2012 to the Iranians, and that did lead first to something called the, the JPOA, which was an interim agreement, which basically created a kind of freeze-for-freeze Iranians could continue to enrich, but they wouldn't enrich at a level of 20%. The more purified the level of enrichment, the more you move towards having a weapons capability. When you enrich uranium, you can use it, if it's at a low level, as a fuel to power, to create electrical power, to fuel nuclear reactors. When you enrich it to 80 to 90% purity, you are in a position where you could create a bomb. This would be the core of a bomb. So we wanted to stop the Iranians from moving down a path that was going to put them in a position where they could at least have the capability to develop a bomb. The negotiations led to the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. This was designed to keep them, in a sense, far away from uh, enrichment to weapons grade. Criticism was not that the JCPOA didn't defer the Iranian nuclear weapons approach, but that's what it did. It deferred it. It didn't end it because they were allowed to have an infrastructure that preserved pursuing a nuclear weapon as an option. Now, that was a source of much of the criticism of the JCPOA. The Trump administration walked away from it and went to a maximum economic pressure campaign on the Iranians. For one year after the time they walked away from it, the Iranians did not walk away from the limitations. Starting a year after, they did begin to walk away incrementally from the limitations. As I said, I think the most significant one is that they are installing advanced centrifuges, something that will change their baseline of knowledge and their experience in terms of developing fissile capabilities. Which side is right? In the first instance, the Obama administration succeeded in putting real limitations on the Iranian program. The criticism that it didn't go far enough was correct. The question was, could you have done certain things, even with the agreement, that could have addressed some of these concerns? My answer was yes. I obviously had my own questions about the JCPOA, but I did think it was a mistake to walk away from it. We ended up walking away alone. We could have negotiated understandings with the British and French and Germans at a minimum uh, that would have helped to isolate the Iranians and not isolate us. We've succeeded in putting economic pressure on the Iranians but we've also succeeded in isolating the United States, not the Iranians. 
there's an election coming up and there's a lot of partisan rhetoric on both sides. And understandably, there's an enormous amount of attention on the economy and on COVID. So Ambassador Ross, for our average listener out there who wants to kind of separate the signal from the noise and understand the debate, the meaningful debate on the Middle East and what to look for on this subject, how would you advise them? Look, I guess I would focus on a couple of things. I wouldn't look at it through the lens of slogans like forever wars. We find it very difficult to insulate ourselves from what are pathologies in the Middle East, whether it's terror or it's regime collapse uh, or it's refugee flows. Number two, especially in a COVID world, none of us are safe until there's an answer on COVID collectively. We can talk about uh, rapid testing. We can talk about vaccines. There's a reality here. Nobody at this point knows uh, how long vaccines are going to be effective, meaning the duration of their effectiveness. If we have pockets of the virus that are still very active, uh, we know one thing about this virus is it just hangs out there uh, and you can be infected by it. So if the Middle East is an area where there's significant examples or we see significant numbers of cases, we have to take what is a kind of broad approach to the world, including the Middle East, but elsewhere, and think about do we have a collective response? Are we helping those countries that may need help? We need to think about the Middle East not only in traditional terms as it relates to terror or oil or nonproliferation of weapons. We also need to think about it in terms of pandemics. This is probably not the last pandemic we're going to face. We need to be thinking about what our collective responses can be, what collective infrastructure we need to create to be able to deal with threats down the road. Ambassador Ross, thank you so much for your time and taking the time out of your busy schedule. I hope our listeners will go read everything that you've written. All of your books are worth reading, but uh, especially the last one that you wrote. Thanks for having me. That was Ambassador Dennis Ross, who's advised four U.S. presidents in the Middle East. Ambassador Ross said that despite all of the global crises requiring our attention, the Middle East remains relevant and that the U.S. would be unwise to withdraw from the region completely. He also said the Israel-UAE-Abraham Accord marks a shift in the strategic landscape in the region. Whereas the Gulf states in Israel have historically been at odds, they are beginning to come together in order to oppose Iran and the threat of Islamic extremism. Israel's innovations in health technology and in other critical economic sectors make it even more appealing as a potential partner. And he said that the Trump administration's decision to walk away from the Iran nuclear deal has put pressure on the Iranians, but also contributed to U.S. isolation. And the insight that stood out most to me was when Ambassador Ross said that while President Obama tried to position himself as more independent and an honest broker in the region, he would advise a president that's what's most important is to be seen as effective. Because in practice, it's very difficult to truly be seen as neutral in international relations. We hope you'll join us next time for a brand new episode of Deciding Factors, featuring another one of GLG's council members. You can subscribe to Deciding Factors on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us online at glg.it, on LinkedIn, and on our new Instagram, at GLG Insights. For Deciding Factors in GLG, I'm Eric Jaffe. Stay safe out there and thanks for listening.